I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Maureen, Sarah, welcome. Thanks, John. Um, thanks so much, John, and thank you um, all for being here. In fact, I, I hear that um, what I'm looking for isn't published till tomorrow, so you're, you're, you're ahead of the, the crowd, so uh, don't miss out on your early copies um, from the LRB. Um, I'm really delighted to be in conversation with Maureen tonight and to hear her read um, once more because she really is one of the contemporary poets um, anywhere that I most admire um, working, working today. And her voice is really instantly recognisable, whatever form or genre or mode she's working in, whether as a poet or as an essayist or memoirist or critic, um, it, by turns passionate, erudite, quizzical, sensuous, philosophical and plangent, and always tip- topped off with this wicked sense of humour. Um, it was actually as a critic that I first came across Maureen's work. Um, I'm sure many of you will know um, her collection of essays, that, that hybrid beast, My Poets, um, which mixes memoir and, and criticism to beguiling effect. I, I just fell in love with this uh, book of essays um, for its emotional candor and nimble wit um, it's very humane, but it, it's also just unabashedly complex too. Um, its chapters um, elliptically tell the arc of its author's life through her passionate engagement with, with various poets from Chaucer to H.D., um, Shelley to Louise Glick, um, who, who in various ways shaped her mind. Um, and I think it makes sense to talk about Maureen's own work as a poet in terms of these historical vistas um, and her poems do genuinely make me think of, of Keats and, and, and negative capability and the, the holding it at bay of, of whatever um, he might mean by that irritable reaching after fact and reason no, no surprise maybe for a writer so steeped as Maureen is in the legacy of the romantics she's an academic uh, a critic of, of that period um, she has this imperative towards clarity in her poems, which she's cognizant of, but she's never tied 
down by it. And I think maybe what excites me about her poems most is their ability to bring song and argument into this exciting collision. I, I feel like I haven't seen elsewhere in quite the same way. They, they achieve this kind of musical thought, as um, Carlyle once called it. She sort of draws on the distinctive music of the English ballad tradition on the one hand, uh, but Beyoncé on the other. She has this incredible breadth of, of reference. Um, uh, Maureen's first two books, Same Life and World Enough, came out in quite quick succession, and they have um, this feeling of a, of a voice arriving on the scene full of these shifting tonalities, um, atmospheric mood, minimal, brilliantly telling strokes, um, probing the minutest currents of human feeling uh, with an almost anthropological eye, whether they're a shimmering lyric addressed to a lover or an essay about, uh, essay about the erotic charge in reading. Her third book, This Blue, I think is what brought her to a, a, an even larger audience in, in the States, uh, where it was a finalist for the National Book Award. Um, they turn their inquiring eye onto what one poem calls the embroidered earth, um, taking up another aspect of the romantics inquiry into the self um, and its relationship to nature. Um, but they're robustly sceptical about the pathetic fallacy and its temptations and instead show the way towards a kind of nature poetry shorn of sentimentality or nostalgizing illusion. Um, the impulse to write about the self came to the head came to a head in, in Mazen, um, the serial, uh, Maureen's um, fourth book, which charts with a nodding echo, a knowing echo of Wordsworth, the growth of a poet's mind. Um, it's a verse narrative sceptical about the very possibility of narrative, and I think Maureen will be reading from it, uh, an extract from it later. Um, her fifth and most recent collection, Some Say, didn't appear until three years later, but actually she wrote it at, uh, pretty much simultaneously with Mazen, and it's that book's sibling and its counter um, turning back again to the resources of lyric. Um, it searches into the possibilities of utterance and enunciation, speech and address, overhearings and mishearings. And you have this feeling in the poems of entering into conversations that have begun without you um, in medias res, which I, I hope uh, tonight's conversation won't feel too much like that, um, though we did begin by catching up over a glass of fizz outside. <laughs> uh, and I had to keep saying to Maureen, no, no, that was a question I was going to ask. <laughs> um, but... Uh, now we will hear poems and then we'll have some conversation and then we'll have a few more poems um, and then there'll be uh, a chance for you to ask Maureen your questions. Uh, so you're in for a treat. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I'm delighted to be here again and I want to thank John and Claire for shepherding us and, and imagining this event. This is you know, incredibly exciting and also to be able to have the kind of secret pre-launch uh, and yet very public of, um, of the book here uh, is special. So thank you for coming and this extraordinary weather um, is a thing I've been looking for. <laughs> so um, and as, as Sarah was so generously um, laying out this book um, 
draws on five books of poems, and I thought I would read uh, some probably from each, and maybe uh, since this is a, a moment where the book is going forth into the world, I thought I would um, begin with a poem, an envoy. Uh, each of the books ends with an envoy sending forth a book into the world, so an envoy. Go, little mind book, and blow her head off. Make her wretch and weep and ache in the gut. Make her regret everything about her life that doesn't include me. And I thought maybe, just as a sounding note, a couple of epigraphs might be, be useful in terms of things that were in my mind in moments of, of writing and thinking over the past 15 or 20 years. Uh, and one comes from, perhaps unlikely, Thomas Malthus's essay on the principle of population, where he asserts that life is, generally speaking, a blessing independent of a future state. Debatable. And from H.D.'s poem, Orchard, Spare Us from Loveliness. And it seemed that I should also um, read the title poem, uh, What I'm Looking For. What I'm looking for is an unmarked door we'll walk through, and there whatever we'd wished for beyond the door. What I'm looking for is a golden bowl, carefully repaired, a complete world sealed along cracked lines. What I'm looking for may not be there. What you're looking for may not be me. I'm listening for the return of that sound I heard in the woods just now, that silvery sound that seemed to call not only to me, And another poem from this book, This Blue, OK Fern. OK Fern, I'm your apprentice. I can now tell you apart from your darker sister ferns whose intricate ridges overlay your more regular triangled fans. Tell me what to do with my life. These, um, there's some, uh, a line from uh, in Wallace Stevens' letters where he says, uh, for most people, life is an affair of people, not of places. But for me, life is an affair of places. He was like, sad, Wallace Stevens. He was sad. Um, uh, he was many other things too, but he was definitely sad. And he went almost nowhere. And uh, to think of Wallace Stevens never going to Paris is an extraordinary thing to think about, given his work and its Francophilic commitments. Um, this is all a divigation to say Stevens means a lot to me or has meant a lot to me, including his sadness, but also for me life is both an affair of places and of people, and I've been very fortunate to uh, be stationed in several different places um, in the past decades, and uh, one place that recurs uh, throughout the book This Blue is, uh, is Italy. And, um, and I often find myself uh, 
both gravitating to writers who are occasioned by place and myself often uh, stimulated by being in situ and uh, being alive to whatever seemed to be the currents of a place. Um, and places, what is, places might be also, as it were, historical time zones. So this poem is called uh, They Were Not Kidding in the 14th Century. They were not kidding when they said they were blinded by a vision of love. It was not just a manner of speaking or feeling, though it's hard to say how the dead really felt, harder even than knowing the living. You are so opaque to me. Your brief moments of apparent transparency seem fraudulent windows in a brutalist structure everyone admires. The effort your life requires exhausts me. I am not kidding. The um, one, one counterpoint that becomes really visible, uh, became visible to me over the course of several books was that I seem to naturally alternate between very short forms and some longer sequences and, uh, and have just gravitated very much to that in my reading as well. And, um, and however um, botched different translations are, and I'm, I'm very grateful for them and indebted to them. And uh, some poems take wing from translations of some very, very short um, uh, Chinese poems, um, classical poems, and uh, some in the Japanese tradition too. And this poem um, is called Taking a Walk in the Woods After Having Taken a Walk in the Woods with You. Now I cannot not see the blight everywhere. Okay. There's more cheerful things here. Although perhaps... not in this poem called Terrible Things Are Happening. Terrible things are happening in Russian novels. Just yesterday I heard in the cafe of two peasants, long friends, one in sudden possession of a watch hanging from a gold chain which so disturbed his compadre he stole upon the other unsuspecting, prayed to God and slit his throat, fleeing with the watch. And that's not the worst of it. Just yesterday, my love and I, too, had not exactly a fight, but a reckoning, perhaps, or no, a conversation, which opened the ocean of grief. And now she is in another city, perhaps crying, and not because of Russian novels. This poem is a title poem of um, uh, my most recent um, book in the U.S. called Some Say. And uh, throughout, throughout this volume and throughout, throughout my books, I found myself returning uh, at times to various fragments of, of, of Sappho's uh, translated variously into English and other languages. And they've, they've often been a, an ongoing resource um, 
sparrow's wing to, to, to ride on at times. Um, so this poem takes wing from a, a, a fragment, I think it's 31, um, that gets translated variously, but something like, some say a host of horsemen, a fleet of ships under sail is most beautiful, but I say it is whatever you love. Some say. Some say a host of horsemen, a horizon of ships under sail is most beautiful, and some say a mountain embraced by the clouds, and some say the badass booty-shaken shorties in the club are most beautiful, and some say the truth is most beautiful, dutifully singing what beauty might sound under stars of a day. I say what they say is sometimes what I say, her legs long and bare, shining on the bed, the hair, the small tuft, the brown languor of a long, li- long line of sunlit skin. I say, whatever you say I'm saying is beautiful. And wither truth, beauty, and wither, wither in the weather of an old day, sucker punched by a spiral of Arctic air blown into vast florets of ice, binding the Great Lakes into a single cracked sheet. The airplanes fly unassuming over. Oh, they eat and eat the steel mouths and burn what the earth spun eons to form. Some say calamity and some catastrophe is beautiful. Some say porn, some jolie laid. Some say beauty is hanging there at a dank bar with pretty and sublime, those sad bitches left behind by the horsemen. And this is a poem uh, which takes up the, the guzzle form um, called For You. It's been a long while since I was up before you, but here I am, up before you. I see you sleeping now that I am up before you. I see the whole morning before you. How dare the sun be up before you when the moon last night promised to hold off the sun just for you? I hear the church bells ring before you. Most days, it's true, the birds are up before you. I should make the coffee as I am up before you. I might just lie here, though, before you. Wake up. Let me look at you. Since I am here before you, I am so rarely simply quiet before you. The orange cat who soon wake you is always up before you. In Morocco or Lamu, the muezzin would be up before you. And yes, it's true, most days the sun is up before you, long before me, and a while before you. Shall I make it a habit to be up before you, to see your soft cheek and feel your breath if I am up before you? Shall I prepare the mise-en-scene for you, hold the shot of the sun in my eye just for you? Go back to sleep, my love, for you are only dreaming I am up before you. I think we might pause now and um, uh, yeah, get to let, talk let, with Sarah. Let's, let's, and let's I'm so thrilled. I mean, Sarah won't. Um, Sarah won't like this, but I, when uh, when Claire and um, John had said that uh, 
they'd be willing to host an event here, and and um, and then Sarah was willing to be um, uh, my compadre. I was very happy, and I, I of course wanted Sarah to read uh, as as a poet I admire enormously. And, and Sarah's like, no. <laughs> so and maybe that will that maybe that refusal will be. Um, you know, fix later on. At any rate, no, it's no, just no. that. <laughs> but um, it's just a just a, a great light delight the, to be in the conversation with Sarah. Here for you, yeah, no, exactly. You. Um, yeah, but what do I want? No. <laughs> um, one of the questions I had to hold off Maureen inadvertently answering in our. Can you hear me? Is the mic working in our uh-huh. in our catch up um, earlier? Uh, related to. I have to say, one of my favourite essays of yours of recent times, um, a piece Maureen wrote um, for the LIRB about uh, pro- the poetic project. Um, it, it, poets like Anne Boyer, Bonnie Kapil, um, writing poems uh, that set themselves sort of parameters or rules, often at book length, uh, for the generation of, of work, which is, I guess, in, in, in works like Mazen, something that you have done yourself to some extent. But I, I guess... Um, one of the paragraphs that most struck me in that essay was where you reflect on the relationship between spontaneity and will, um, thinking about back to Keats and the idea of the, the poems coming as naturally as the leaves on the tree, or, or preferably not at all. Um, and how does that feel for you, that, that nexus in your own composition as a poet? Yeah, it's a great question, um, because I, I definitely had tended to be amazed when I either met people or read about people who had, you know, not only fixed writing schedules, um, but uh, fixed projects. And that's, and, and, and that's different from, say, my experience writing essays for um, uh, journalistic essays, you know, accepting a commission. And, and that I actually found often quite wonderful and liberating, the sense that it was time bound and there was a there was a an actual aim and there was an actual notional audience but i i my experience of writing poems was never um under that kind of a sign for a very long time and and i you know i do think picking up on 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 the keats quotation you offered is is it he says you know we hate we hate that thing that has a palpable design on us. And is he talking about Milton there? And, and so I sort of feel um, Keats is both right, but also I love Milton, who has nothing you know, but designs on us. And I think in... Uh, so I myself am uh, ambivalent about this. And, what I, and, and as you... I, I found myself backing into things that actually were... Uh, one might call them projects. But that's different from, say... Uh, procedural or conceptual poets who might have um, an algorithm or uh, a combinatoire that they're, they're, they're working with and there are some amazing works in that key. That's definitely not how I tend to work, although I can really appreciate some of those works. Um, but the Mizen um, book was a real, in a way, surprise to myself. And I think I got to it by virtue of writing the um, sort of hybrid autobiographical critical essays in my poets, where I was thinking much more uh, actively about periods of life and uh, conjunctions of reading and living and weather and um, thought. And I think that that kind of loosened um, 
some joints and maybe oiled a few gears, and then it, it and it and I had actually had um, a, a sequence in uh, my first book featuring this character Mizen, uh, who in which some actual uh, things happened, like things don't. Plot, I'm not a plot person, but it turns out I I'm implotted. Who knew, right? So. Welcome to therapy. But uh, I had a poem called um, From Ms. N, the Serial that I had written in 2005, and it appeared in my first book. And I thought it was a fixed thing, and it was partly um, kind of in a key of autobiographical narrative, but it was studded by you know, a sonnet and a song. And, and I thought that that was its own thing. And then about 10 or 15 later, years later, that character sort of reasserted itself as a, as a useful vehicle. And then all of a sudden, I started writing more in that key, and I was, I was surprised by it. So I guess um, I was wrestling, as, as, as you know, I was wrestling with this. There's actually a very funny and wonderful chapbook by the poet Dorothy Alasky called Poetry is Not a Project. And she's trying to stick a knife in the heart, you know, of everybody, you know, having to legitimize, you know, writing poems by having some grand claim. I'm like, oh, my God, no claims, no claims, just alive, just holding on, people. So, but she's very, she's very funny and hostile to the idea that one has to have a project to legitimize whatever it is you're doing. Um, I appreciated both her wit and her hostility. I also very much liked three books I was talking about that are very much project books. So, so I, this is a very diffuse answer to your question but um and you know this too that uh, I kind of did set myself a kind of um gift project uh for my 50th birthday where I asked people in advance of it would they commission me to write them a poem because I wanted to be in a different uh ecology economy of, of writing, and I've often written occasional poems over the years for people, and I wanted to do this as a kind of as or gift to self, you know, and make that a formal um, thing. And that's been kind of going on for a little while, and that's been super interesting. Um, so, so there are ways that I've been I've kind of found myself surprised into something that I might call a project, even though I've always I am I'm sure there are very subtle algorithms of will and spontaneity and all of these things I, I don't I don't however ideologically compromised the, the next sentence will be I still believe it I always found in poetry a pace of possible freedom mm-hmm. and so the idea that it would be an administered space is one that would make me want to vomit so I think there is some there's a possibility of projects that are not administrative and that is where you know, I like to read or move or, or whatever. Mm. Um, um, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, project you set yourself for your birthday. For Maureen's own birthday, she wrote um, these present poems for friends and wrote an absolutely beautiful poem for my little boy when he was born last year. Um, but that project, I guess, conveys something of the sociality of your poems. Rereading um, them in the Selected, I was struck again and again by how many friends make appearances in the poems, often uh, in, in the guise of um, a friend said. That's a, a move mm. that seems to come back quite often. It, it reminds me in, in, of a horror in, in some ways, but um, in others it, it points, I think, to something bigger about the way lyric works. 
in your poems that it, it's not so much about um, the singularity of the of the eye as about something almost choral at points. Um, uh, I think it speaks to that line we heard just now from some say, I say what they say is sometimes what I say. This is a, an idea that comes back again and again in your prose and your poems that um, our minds are made up of this tissue of other minds. Um, yeah, so how, how have you related to the lyric across this idea of the individual voice versus the, the choric and the collective? I feel like, um, again, such a... Um, a resonant and astute question, and um, I think about that in several keys. I mean, one is I I have a, a, a not current but a long history as a choral singer, and that really gives you a really profound sense of uh, co-resonance and um, and different kinds of hearing. I also I feel like any I. I Part of this is probably also related to my interest in uh, or feeling recognized through certain forms of psychoanalytic uh, essays and theory because I do feel like we are all, um, I'm sure in different ratios, but we, we're all carriers of others, you know, and, and we are being carried by others and we're sometimes being, you know, um, pricked and tormented by others. But, but that sense that... Um, that any of us is a, uh, a resonating chamber. Uh, and I always had, you know, as much as, as much as, you know, I'm an egotist as much as anybody, I also always had the feeling um, that anybody's life, you know, is potentially allegorical, first of all, and that it's, it's shot through by others' voices and lives. And, and, and so in terms of, I think I found this um, to happen most palpably to me in music, uh, in song, and in lyric itself. And that if it, if you took to it, it as it were occupied you, and that it was a kind of good occupation. You know, that you became the instrument for the thing, or it played on you. And that seemed to me a very um, that seemed to be part of the somatics of reading. You know, that it kind of moved through you and maybe uh, um, did things to you and also became part of whatever you might be thinking or saying to other people. So that, I, I have language for it now, but that's what I was experiencing. And so I guess I also always found the find your voice mantra uh, antipathetic. I feel that, you know, there's a difference between that aesthetically and politically. Um, and I sort of feel like find your voices, you know, or let them occupy you, you know. So, uh, or maybe it's not about voice, right? Maybe it's about something else. Um, maybe it's a tonality. Um, so, and then I get heartened, you know, whenever I find things that confirm my prejudices. Um, I get heartened, you know, when uh, some people talk about Sappho, say, as a lyric poet, as this is emerging out of a choral situation. You know, and all of these things that are voiced in the eye, in fact, were communally sung. And uh, so that, that kind of, um, the sense of the sociality of the eye, uh, however much it's asserted, seems to me really deep, even, even however inflected it is by all the things we're inflected by. Um, yeah. Mm. Um, what was it like, Maureen, revisiting um, 
these collections to select from them for this book. I mean, I, looking back over the publications of your dates of your books, I uh, hadn't thought about the fact that they appeared in this uh, really quite short space of time, five books in less than a decade. I know that the, the first must have been brewing for quite some time, but um, there was this immense flowering that suddenly happened in your, in your poems. Um, yeah, what was it like uh, writing those books uh, in such close quarters with one another and then going back to them for, for this volume? Well, as, as you said, the, the, first, the first book... Um, um, distilled things that had been percolating for for a long while, and uh, and th- this book um, it draws as well on two chapbooks that came out in two thousand five and two thousand six, and I think that there was a way in which um, I mean it didn't fe- I mean there's always this it didn't feel to me like and now I'm in a decade of productivity even though that is uh, that is what one can say objectively say and I'm thrilled about that but that wasn't as it were an aim but I feel that there was space for there obviously was space for uh, unspooling and focusing and, and I feel very fortunate and I'm sure too that having the, the support of those uh, of those early chapbooks and friends and, and, and conversations and, and mentors was uh, very sponsoring and and in terms of going going back to things, I mean, partly that was extremely interesting, and partly I had the, you know, it was I was handed back also a sense of my work partly from from Donald, my editor at Penguin, which was you know also fascinating to see what the convergence was, what what I might uh, what list I might come up with, and to see what other people uh, wanted to read or wanted to see as representative. So you you start. Um, so I fortunately didn't find it alienating. That's exciting, you know, since um, my appetite for alienation is vast. Uh, I found it interesting. Um, and, and also the sense, too, um, some of the orders were changed and that sense of what, what, would a, what would hopefully be a good reading experience for people who didn't know this work and who were maybe coming new to it, what might be a freshening experience. But it did make me think a lot about what was simultaneous and what was what was composed when. Um, yeah. Mm. So. Um, uh, maybe one, one more question, then we'll hear some more poems. Um, we heard just now that, that lovely um, line or lines, um, it was not just a matter of speaking or feeling. Um, and I guess I'm very interested in the relationship between speaking and feeling and maybe by extension feeling and thinking in your poems um how do they go together or not go together for you feeling in all the senses of um the sensory and sensual but also the emotional life of the of the poems that's a great question i mean i guess one thing this may be not exactly uh, to the force of your question, but I do feel keenly the sensuality of thought, and partly that's the way it gets baked into into language itself, you know. And um, and I do I often think of um, a, a line that both Mahmoud Darwish and 
Paul Valéry came, uh, that this sense of a rhythm seizes me. And that brings them forward into a kind of compositional space. And often I feel that, that a, a rhythm or a phrase or something will emerge partly with walking, you know, or partly um, just as a kind of sonic hook. And it may have some kind of emotional charge, but it may just be this ambient um, preoccupation that suddenly become a phrase. So that's slightly different. <laughs> um, let me think about that. I mean, you know, one of, Wordsworth had a, a volume of poems he called Moods of My Own Mind, which is just so hilarious and terrible, and yet it's such a great title. And I sort of feel like what I'm like, moods of my own mind. <laughs> and, um, and I guess um, I do not actually partition thinking and feeling. Um, or I feel like that doesn't mean that I don't have all kinds of compartmentalizations and all, but I feel like when things are in tune, then they are in tune in such a way that they are co-flowing and that one wouldn't be able to, to isolate them. And, uh, and I love that in, that will show itself in other people's works of art in different keys, either literary or visual or, or, or musical, um, I'm always, you know, I'm always a little sad if people don't like to encounter a thought, you know, in terms of, um, I mean, I love that you, you, you kind of brought the Carlisle notion of, of musical thinking. I think that that's, that's a thing I love in, in a lot of, um, you know, Elizabethan lyrics, say, or, or some, you know, some other poems that I care about, so, um, um, let's hear yeah, some yeah. Poems, and actually, that's another reason. Segue. It's another reason I love uh, what I love about Shelley. Um, both woo, spiraling out enormous architecture of thought, but in this gorgeous, gorgeous kind of sonic patterning. And it's very, it's an unusual and probably shouldn't be aimed for uh, kind of achievement in English verse. Um, and you know, also much criticized. But there's something about that that is sort of dazzling. Um, so I thought um, maybe I'd read a couple of episodes from uh, Mizen, the serial, um, and, and uh, one, um, there are various tutelary spirits in this book, um, various romantics, Shelley and Keats and Mary Shelley and various musicians and philosophers uh, who just crop up here and there and hopefully aren't too, you know, esoteric or annoyingly presented. Um, but um, this particular episode, Mizen Triumph of Life, takes its title from Shelley's unfinished poem, Unfinished, because he drowned um, uh, uh, while sailing. Um, and it's a tremendous poem. And so this is early in the, in the book and setting up... Um, uh, the space of, of more episodes and tale-telling that'll happen as the book goes forward. So Mizen, Triumph of Life. Some are alive easy and slip into the world's skin as their own and plums. Mizen isn't one, or wasn't. Then what is life, I cried, cried Shelley in one version of The Triumph of Life, the title of which from one angle is a satirical title, 
triumphs in those days, like Romans, a chance to parade the victims, in this case, the victims of life, which are, in the end, from a mortal angle, everyone. Better never to have been, the old sage said, and each world rediscovers no river, no river twice. And yet it seems the same river, however much you are not the same. He's not so bleak, that sleek and laughing vegetarian poet. Oh, could you not learn to swim, you idiot, singing yourself aboard ships you could sail but not sail home? Just like you to learn to sail and not to swim. Just like Mizen to dive in after him. an episode called Mizen High School Boyfriend. There was a high school boyfriend. There is always one in young adult novels since romance is outsourced to the teens as in Shakespeare. Ms. N was no romantic about this very nice high school boyfriend. She would have said he was very nice and the parents more or less approved. He seemed nice, undebouched, sanitized, etc. Ms. N was vaguely excited by the sex thing, which wasn't much happening, and this was irritating, but may have kept her just this side of launching the chain reaction and meltdown, which would turn her soul into Chernobyl. Ms. N was a catastrophist, which was, in her view, the highest realism. This is not the time to retail the horrors and pleasures of suburbia, so many of both, and you know them from so many novels and movies Mizen had never seen. It seemed overdetermined to live in a town named for a famous lost civilization. Minoa was archaic then, and now the bull moved his brute force through her dreams and she'd ride him. The boyfriend was conspicuously nice, which was just what she wanted and not. She was split that way, typical split, the good daughter raging a beast within. And so, the boyfriend was part of her cover, the elaborate impersonation of an American teenager almost everyone engaged in, a vast communal experiment which led for white people to consequences and sociological reflection and TV series. She couldn't see the boyfriend. She could sense him, sort of, nothing clear. She was too much in her own way, not to mention the boyfriend's. And the crazed mirror of her self-absorption intervened, a veritable Versailles of ostentatious non-encounter in plexiglassed and lockered halls. He was a good enough boyfriend for a while, and so, in an experimental spirit, one day she said, I love you. She didn't, and she didn't quite not. It was a thing to try out the fatal banal words, a paradigm shift, they said. Nothing shifted, but the deep tectonic plates that constitute the crust of her core shifted in a spasm of self-disgust. She didn't feel it, and she didn't not. Why say anything? I heard words and words full of holes aching. Words are deeds, true and false, truth or dare. Her tongue, herself, 
a forked, unknowing thing that sang two parts unharmonizing. Even then she saw the decent boy with a queer remoteness. He wasn't up for her project of violent self-formation and soon faded into the unfinished basement of her mind. And then I would read one more, um, uh, in part because it was published by the LRB, so um, which I was very excited about and remain excited about, um, uh, called Mizen Baby. One day, her sister asked Mizen to have her baby. This was intriguing. This was frightening as there had been no babies come through her, and to have a baby, not her baby, seemed a strong, hard thing to split the body for. Shitting a pumpkin is what a friend of Shulamith Firestone said in the late 60s it was like. This birth thing, this birthing, the midwives were gathering, a sharp-eyed coven prepared to elbow out the doctors who, after all, have long done harm as much as not. Ms. N's sister didn't quite ask her. It was more a raising of the question. All that summer, she thought along a country road about this thing. Not to the future, but to the fuchsia, she thought, eyeing the dicentra and misremembering Gertrude Stein. Not the past, but the last possible thing. Isn't it strange to think I have a dick in me, the pregnant teen said to her dismayed dad in a short story. More stories these days embrace babies. Before, they were there more as ghost cries. There he goes, crowing, said Gertrude Stein of Hemingway, about the birth of his son, as if a million men every day weren't fathers. She had a point, but still. That little baby is Bumby in a movable feast. There was nothing more romantic than the way Hem and his wife shared a bottle of wine in their bear cabin in the winter woods, I used to think. The whole book seemed a valentine from another time. He said they were poor and repeated it, but I didn't believe it. That baby grew up and did not kill himself, unlike his father and grandfather. Babies are romantic if they are subordinate. The minute they rise up, I'll scream, it's a new wound. Why not let yourself be torn? Why not let anything be born? Mizen wondered how anyone ever made a decision, especially women. Reason is but choosing, but there are so many reasons. Choice is a fallacy sustained by the ideology of the individual, says a friend of Mizen. Nevertheless, the thrush doesn't choose to sing, but sings, and the maple can't choose not to leaf out. And Mizen can't choose not to drift through a summer of possibles and unresolved doubts. And I'll end with a poem that ends the book, uh, An Envoy Eclipse. I don't trust myself not to look. <laughs> oh, so wonderful. Thanks, Maureen. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, turn to the audience in just a moment, but I'll um, maybe ask... One more question about audience, actually. Um, to what extent do you have a reader um, in mind when you write your poems and what might that reader look like? And I, I wonder if this speaks also to the process of putting to get together the selected um, in as much as what was it like thinking of these poems being in the hands of a British or a European readership? I know Britain and Europe often appear in the poems as transatlantic locales, but um, I wonder if uh, thinking about that might have sort of brought the Americanness of, of the poems or, or otherwise um, to you afresh. I think it definitely did. Um, and, I mean, to the first part of your question, I don't... If there's a particular, say, commission or an occasional thing, then I would have a very specific reader or set of readers in mind. But in general, it's um, that's not. I, I don't write toward that. I mean, after I've done things and after I've sat with them and revised them, I might give them um, to a few people. But it's not that I'm writing. It's that sense of a of a of an inner. <sighs> sounding board, which again is always already social, always already choral, that, that I think I'm writing to and against, that might be inflected if I were doing a commissioned thing. And and I think your work, one's work gets reframed, as you say, in, in this case, and I think the Americanness um, was newly accented in a way, I mean, in a way it perhaps hadn't been since I was a student at Oxford, where being American trumped every identity category in a fascinating way. You know, it was like they hadn't even gotten a misogyny yet, you know, because <laughs> they were still working on the American problem. So, and that was sort of peculiarly liberating, you know. So, I mean, again, that was another moment. But, um, but yeah, I think, I, I don't think that, I wasn't, I personally wasn't thinking Oh, this wouldn't fly with a. Um, I, I wasn't bringing that to the to the table. Um, I sort of feel that's up for, for the readers to say to me. Um, oh, that's a typically American thing. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, maybe we should hear from some, from some readers. Uh, so I think there's mics, right? Okay, so John Clegg will will bring a mic around if you'd like to ask a question. 
Thank you. Hello. Um, you spoke brilliantly about uh, varying ideas on poetry as a project. Uh, you spoke about the idea of uh, inspiration coming perhaps from an ambient or sonic hook. Um, poets are often warned against the idea of ever sitting down to write about something. Um, but do you ever find yourself sitting down to write about something? Or is that not how it works for you? Um... It's 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 happened sometime with this with this new this new thing where where people have kind of given me assignments. So then I will respond to that, and sometimes that, that the aboutness uh, quotient um, rises in longer sequences. And so and it, uh, so for example, something I didn't read from now. There's a a, a, a sequence called Songs of a Season. And it's it's all in triolets, and it is a lot about a kind of repetition compulsion of, you know, memory and erotics and uh, travel and being stuck and yet uh, hitting it again and hitting it differently, and that the, the the form itself was thematizing part of the aboutness. So so there's a way in which aboutness emerges often for me rather than precedes, but sometimes it can precede. Um, I mean, I partly think about this through this. Ex- I don't know if it's apocryphal. I think it's, you know, Sarah can tell me this exchange between Robert Frost and Wallace Stevens where, where Stevens says something to him like, you know, uh, Frost is like, oh, Stevens, you and your bric-a-brac. You know, you have, and, and Frost is like, you know, and he's like, oh, you and, you, you know, your subjects, you know. And I sort of feel like, you know, I'm, uh, again, maybe culpably open to either, you know, kind of, kind of way of thinking about things. I have a related question. I was also struck by what you said about um, poetry as a project without administration. And I found it sort of immediately attractive and kind of... Hopefully. uh, Hopefully. (laughs) I mean, there's been actually... There's a lot of... (laughs) um, That's an ideal. (laughs) Well, I kind of wanted to press you on that a little bit because because it just sounds so inspiring and in a certain way sort of intuitive... And yet, and yet, I feel like I'm not entirely able to imagine what it means. I mean, I assume you meant administration, some kind of internal administration, not sort of somebody gives us, you know, guidelines. But, the, but then I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to, sort of, and I'm, you know, I'm asking so that I can take notes and then go away and not write poems. Don't worry, um, but you know, do other stuff. Um, you know, what what is a project that is not administered? Yeah. What's what's the distinction? I mean, maybe, I mean, one example, I can kind of be empirical about it. I mean, one example would be the one I just, I just gave where I began something and it wasn't, oh, now I shall write a, you know, a sequence of triolets on X. It's that I started something in and it kind of emerged. So I guess as opposed to uh, a kind of, you know, rigid notion of administration, no administration, I partly think about this through this notion. Um, and again, all of these are, Maybe they're excessively Shellian. You know, they're very idealizing, but they're enabling, and so why not, right? Um, uh, I think of uh, Susan Stewart's notion of lyric possession, that 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 people can be uh, moved by and taken up by things, and you can also decide to. I mean, look in another. Um, uh, I sometimes find myself very much, and again, partly to my surprise, responding to some. Um, Irritants, uh, and and the other thing too is I think it's some I think 
irritation and anger are definitely underrated as um, muses, um, especially for women. Um, so that's a separate and yet related issue. Um, but I think that sense of beginning something, uh, you might have an idea, and then one discovers it can bring you further into a territory. And that doesn't mean that one can't then say, oh, you were actually semi-consciously following um, some template. But it also doesn't mean uh, the, the poem felt dominated by externality. Uh, and I think, and some people find externality, I mean, look, it's like, you know, sexual taste. Like, some people find that, like, it really works for them, right? So I'm not making a legislative statement about how I, I'm talking about, in part, the essay that Sarah was, was mentioning. If anything, um, I, I'm often just profoundly ambivalent about these things, you know, and I sort of, and, and I can find that there's a, there can often be like a strong tacking in a conversation towards something, assuming this is the way to do something, this is the way it should be done. And I sort of think, well, A, it's not always the way it's been done, and B, there are other ways. See, like some part of me always wants to push, push back on the, on the, you know, what was it, how, um, how to read, what to do, or pounds, ABCs of reading. You know, they're, they're you know, you, maybe yes, maybe no. But, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I think this might be yet another version of a similar question, but it also goes back to... Um, something that you were both saying in conversation about voice and, and about lyric. Um, I was just very interested in, in, in the kind of different tonality in the Mizen poems and interested in asking what difference it makes to be writing in the third person rather than in a kind of lyric I or yeah. to a lyric you yeah. um, in some sense and whether that felt liberating or whether that brought out different possibilities for you that you hadn't otherwise explored. No, it's um, it's a it's a great question, and and it it felt in some ways. It felt both both, I mean, let's put it this way: it's not like I was feeling horribly constrained before, but I feel like uh, I felt like new possibilities, both dramatic and narrative, were opened up, and I was I was open to it, having done another kind of prose narrative and um, having the third person. You know, there are there are a bunch of of templates. For that, I mean, partly Berman's dream songs, or, or uh, it just it allows it allowed for a kind of um, uh, perspectival um, vibration that that isn't isn't available if you're if you're going first person solely. And sometimes in that sequence, I will pivot to the first person, or there will be addresses pivots to use. But I found it a really interesting. Fascinating, fascinatingly flexible device, and I liked that a lot. Um, yeah. So. Okay. In that case, shall we um, thank Maureen one more time? And thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk/events. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.